0: This is EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana.
1: Welcome back to EM Pulse. So today we are talking about helping patients with sickle cell in the ED. Again, this is part two of our three-part series. Last episode, we spoke about vaso episodes or BOE or pain crises. And this time, we're going to explore a novel approach to meet that criteria of getting pain meds to our patients who are suffering from a pain crisis. To
2: do that, we interviewed Dr. Chris Reese. Dr. Reese is an assistant professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Emory University. Welcome, Chris.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So the article that we are discussing is called Intranasal Fentanyl and Discharge from the Emergency Department Among Children with Sickle Cell Disease and Vasoocclusive Pain, A Multi-Center Pediatric Emergency Medicine Perspective. And it's from the American Journal of Hematology in April 2023. This is a PCARN study.
2: You might remember PCARN stands for Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, which is a federally funded research machine that really helps us in emergency medicine to answer clinical questions about care of acutely ill and injured children. So the study team conducted a secondary analysis of a cross-sectional study to assess the use and impact of intranasal fentanyl for treating VOE, or vaso episode, at 20 academic pediatric emergency departments from 2015 to 2016. Inclusion criteria for the study were children with severe forms of sickle cell disease who presented the EDs for a pain episode, or VOE, and they received pain treatment. The primary outcome was the rate of discharge from the emergency department. Chris, is that a fair summary?
0: Yeah, I think so. I um might just add a couple of things. Uh so first, I think as we talk about this study, it's it's immensely important to remember that children who have sickle cell disease no pain unlike many other patient populations. Um it they have to deal with it far more than most patients and possibly more than any other population with a chronic disease. And I, I simply say that to make the point that it's very important to remember that when a family makes the decision to come to the emergency department due to sickle cell disease related vaso pain episodes, they've usually tried several things at home and, and that has not provided enough relief for the pain. So the pain they're experiencing when they come to the emergency department is, is immense and, and it's an emergency that needs to be addressed quickly. So that's one. Second, our group previously described that the median time to placement of an IV Uh, for children who presented with a vaso pain episode was 52 minutes, which is well beyond the recommended time to opioid administration of 30 minutes from triage. So collectively, we thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to circumvent this bottleneck of placing an IV uh, to begin opioids for sickle cell disease-related vaso pain episodes. And that was sort of the rationale for the study.
2: I love that, Chris. And I think this is worthwhile to pause here and point out that We did say in our last podcast, this is an emergency, right? Like these kids need to be triaged accordingly. They need to be believed and they need to be treated accordingly. And that was a big emphasis in our last podcast, as well as the idea of door to opiates should be less than 60 minutes. Can you clarify where the 30 minutes applies?
0: Well, that number comes from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute recommendations from 2014, and the recommendation is 30 minutes from the time of triage or 60 minutes from the time of presentation to the emergency department. So slight nuance is there in that difference, but the point is we want to get those pain medications on board as quickly as possible.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it is really crucial at this point to also address what are some of the differences between adults and kids and placing IVs. Chris, what are some of the challenges that you think these kids face as to why it would take 52 minutes to get an IV in them?
0: Well, I think it's important to realize that Gaining IV access in children is inherently more difficult, right? They're smaller uh, vessels that nurses are trying to put an IV into. These are children who have had IVs many, many times, and that, of course, can lead to scarring of the veins, uh, which makes IV access harder. You know, I think a common scenario is that nurses who are probably the best uh, of any location in the hospital at placing IVs often struggle to get lines in these children, and they oftentimes then have to call an IV team if a hospital has such a team available. And that all adds time. Uh, as I said previously, we described that the median time to placing an IV in children who presented with a vasoclusive pain episode was 52 minutes. So again, if we're thinking about getting pain meds in quickly, that's, that's a real bottleneck that we have to take into consideration.
2: In our pediatric emergency department, some of the other challenges that we have are These kids are in pain, right? That adds to their stress. The family already tried what they can at home, and so now they're here. And uh, there can be some significant anxiety with placing a pediatric IV for both the nurse that's trying to place the IV for the child and the family. And so sometimes you need extra people. I don't know about you in your emergency department, but in ours, it definitely is an all hands on deck to be able to help create the right environment, to take away pain for the IV and then to stabilize the arm while the IV is being placed. It often takes more people as well. So that can be another really big challenge to placing a pediatric IV.
0: There's also been evidence to suggest that ED crowding can lead to decreases in times to place an IV, you know, and it's just a simple. supply and demand issue. If there are too many patients uh, for each nurse, then of course it's going to delay the time that it takes to get something like an IV in.
1: Well, you guys have given us some really compelling reasons as to why we might want to study this. Talk to us about your research question and some of the results that you found.
0: Well, these data were collected as part of a grant to select sites for an ongoing uh, multicenter randomized control trial. Our team had anecdotally observed that children who received intranasal fentanyl, uh, which can be administered rapidly and again without an IV, uh, we observed that those children often experienced greater pain relief in the emergency department. And of course, they got that opioid on board a lot faster than those children who are waiting for an IV and waiting for the medication and so on and so forth. But prior to this study, that was just an anecdotal observation. And so we really wanted to dig in to figure out, is there an impact on giving intranasal fentanyl on the child's disposition? In other words, are they more likely to be discharged if they receive intranasal fentanyl as part of their package of different medications and and therapies that are administered in the emergency department?
1: Talk to us about some of your results.
0: I will just say, if you don't remember anything else from this podcast or from our paper, please remember this. And that's simply that using intranasal fentanyl for sickle cell disease, vaso pain episodes, is an effective way to quickly treat pain, and it was associated with a nine-fold greater likelihood that those visits would result in discharge from the emergency department compared to those children who did not receive intranasal fentanyl as part of their package of medications. And we found this to be true even when controlling for Multiple things like self-reported pain scores, changes in self-reported pain scores, and a variety of other clinically relevant factors.
2: Tell us a little bit more about that, Chris. Which patients got intranasal fentanyl? Who did you compare them to? And then what did you guys find about discharge?
0: One of the very powerful aspects of our study is that it included data from 20 different sites. Now, it's important to note this study was not designed to answer this question, and this was sort of a secondary look at these data. And as part of that, we found that of those 20 sites that were included, only 10 of them routinely used intranasal fentanyl. And so I I have worked at sites that have used intranasal fentanyl and knew the value of this and knew sort of the experience that families have with getting pain medications on board rapidly. But as we were designing our study, we thought, well, goodness, that gives us an opportunity to look at whether or not um, the receipt of intranasal fentanyl is, is improving outcomes in any way. To answer the question, which was you know what's the impact of giving children who present with a vasoocclusive pain episode, intranasal fentanyl on their discharge, and I should say that it's important as we're talking about discharge from the emergency department for vasoocclusive pain episodes, to remember that that's largely driven by the family, and that's largely driven by how the patient feels with sickle cell disease related vasoocclusive pain. We have no way of knowing exactly how a patient is feeling, and only that patient knows how they feel, and so their self-reported pain is what should drive whether or not they go home or not. So in order to answer the question of the impact of intranasal fentanyl, we used what's called a multivariable logistic regression model, which um, in, in more simplistic terms is taking into account all of the different variables that we thought could contribute to a child being discharged from the emergency department or controlling for those things. So these were things like the patient's age, their sex, their pain score when they got there, their change in their pain score, which medications they received, the time at which they received those medications, all of those different things. And as we controlled for all of these things, we found in our model that intranasal fentanyl had the strongest relationship on discharge from the emergency department. In fact, those children who received intranasal fentanyl had a 900 percent greater likelihood of being discharged from the emergency department in comparison to those who did not. Again, accounting for all those other things that we thought were going to um, perhaps wash out the impact of intranasal fentanyl, but it just didn't.
2: Wow, that is massive. Why do you think that intranasal fentanyl was such a powerful factor in disposition?
0: It's a great question, and I don't know the answer right now. I'll just say that off the bat. You know, we thought, gosh, could it just be that these children are getting pain medications more rapidly because we noticed that children who received intranasal fentanyl were more likely to receive their first parenteral opioid within the 30-minute window that's recommended. But it turned out, turns out that in the model, in other words, when accounting for all of those different variables, time-to-first opioid did not impact the child's disposition from the emergency department. So maybe there's something else going on mechanistically with intranasal fentanyl. Of course, we don't know. And the other thing I should say is this is an observational study. The only way to truly answer this question is by doing a randomized control trial, comparing intranasal fentanyl to placebo. But of course, that study has yet to be done.
1: Were there differences in the total amount of opioids that the patients received?
0: The children who received intranasal fentanyl received slightly more total opioids in the emergency department in comparison to those children who did not. But it's important to note that they did not receive more intravenous or IV opioids in comparison to those children who did not.
2: Was there a difference in initial pain scores in those who received intranasal fentanyl versus those who don't? Could that be why they were more likely to go home?
0: That's a fantastic question. So the answer is no. The pain scores were controlled for. And that wasn't driving whether or not the children went home. There really was something else going on with the intranasal fentanyl, at least as far as we can tell from these observational data.
2: Chris, did you guys talk to the families and to the patients to get any understanding from their perspective if there was something on uh, another level as far as like satisfaction with the intranasal fentanyl?
0: We didn't. And again, this was a, a sort of secondary look at the data. And I think that's a fantastic question. I think there are many things that go into whether or not a family is willing to use intranasal fentanyl. You know, it is something that's a little uncomfortable. It's, it's you know, spray up the nose. Um, and, and some families may be reluctant to, to do that. Some families may not have had a positive experience with it in the past. And we just can't answer that question from this study.
1: Chris, how has this changed your care for these patients?
0: So I always make sure to offer any family who's presenting with a child who has a vaso pain episode from sickle cell disease, intranasal fentanyl. And I talk to them about the benefits of it and explicitly talk about the issues around getting IV access and all of those different things. So I sort of made it part of my routine practice. It's one of the things I first start talking to families about. And I make sure that they're educated and they're aware that this is an alternative while, of course, we're waiting for the IV. But I think one thing that's quite important to to make note of here is intranasal fentanyl is not meant to replace IV opioids. This is meant to be a bridge while we're waiting for IV access and intravenous opioids to be administered. We don't want people to start thinking that this is something that will be done, and then you don't have to be ordering morphine or Dilaudid or whatever the case may be. This is meant to be a bridge because, again, these families are coming in. The child's in excruciating pain. They've tried many things at home. This is a way to get things going quickly and may even help them get home.
2: So the way that I use this, and I've been using this for several years now without Chris's evidence, (laughs) but like Chris, I I practiced at a place that had instituted this and kind of tried this out and had seen positive effects myself. So what I do is if I'm watching the board and I'm able to identify somebody that is checking in that has a chief complaint of a sickle cell pain crisis or VOE then I will go to their care plan, put in their IV meds, and then also put in intranasal meds. And then I try to get in there as fast as I can so I can have that discussion with families and with the patients and be like, I have this as an option because a lot of them haven't done it before. (laughs) I have this as an option. Talk about what it feels like in the nose and what the advantages are. Now I can use Chris's study to explain it. And then let them decide whether they want to do that. Sometimes, by the time I get in there, the nurses are like really fast and placing an IV already. And then I'm like, okay, let's just go forward with that. That doesn't make sense to now splash your nose (laughs) if we have an IV in place. But if I can get in there, my ideal is to have that conversation first and then use that as a bridge over. And I actually find that IV placement happens. a little bit easier and faster with it on board. This is just me purely anecdotal. But I think me trying to get in there early, setting up a plan with a nurse and the patient and being like, this is the priority that we need and this is how fast we need to move. Maybe that act has also helped the IV to get in a little bit faster. But collectively, that's how I have applied this.
1: Yeah, and we've used it on the adult side even. And, you know, on the adult side, you also have an intramuscular option, but a lot of people are not big fans of needles or they find that the fentanyl works a little bit faster. So we have used that for some patients on the adult side, especially from triage.
0: Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, some places are even implementing nurse-initiated protocols to administer intranasal fentanyl. Um, so they don't have that added bottleneck of waiting for the physician to see the child step out of the room, put in orders, all of those different things. Just as you're saying, once a child presents with a vasoclusive pain episode, our nurses can go ahead and start that. They can go ahead and put in a series of orders that are later signed, but that includes intranasal fentanyl. And of course, the family then has the opportunity to decline, but that's part of uh, sort of our protocol at this point here.
2: I think that's brilliant. That makes a lot of sense to take out that bottleneck, and we'd probably all see a significant reduction in
1: time-to-pain medicines if we did that. Chris, going back to your research, was there anything about the study that surprised you?
0: You know, it's just the magnitude of the benefit of intranasal fentanyl on discharge to home even when controlling for pain scores and other potentially contributory factors. It was really astonishing. You know, in medicine, we're often impressed by things that lead to 50, 60 percent improvements. But here we saw nearly a 900 percent greater likelihood of being discharged at home with intranasal fentanyl. And that's saying something.
2: That magnitude was absolutely staggering. I would totally have been surprised as well. So what are the next steps here?
0: Well, I think it's a fantastic question. I'm not a bench scientist, so I'm not the guy who's going to start digging into any mechanism that may be leading to this, but I think that would be one avenue of investigation. And as I've said a couple of times, I think ultimately to answer this question, we need a placebo controlled, randomized controlled trial. But at the same time, we know that this works and we see that it works. But the only definitive study to say that this causes discharge from the emergency department would be a randomized controlled trial. Everything we have so far is an association. To definitively answer that question, that's what we would need. But just to put a plug in, again, as I said, this was a a secondary analysis of a data set that was collected as part of a clinical trial planning study. So we're actively enrolling children for what's called the START trial, which is a trial in which we're administering intravenous arginine, which is an amino acid which has been shown to reduce endothelial dysfunction. Um, We're enrolling at 10 different sites. This, again, is a PCARN study. And the question we're trying to answer here is, are there other things that we can give these children beyond opioids? Opioids are not great medications. We know that. They lead to long-term side effects, dependence, all sorts of different things. And so we're trying to figure out, are there other medications that could potentially replace or reduce the need for opioids altogether?
2: Brilliant. Well, Chris, I'm so glad that there are people like you and your team that are trying to answer these questions and help us all take care of these kids better.
0: Pulse check.
1: Intranasal fentanyl is an effective way to treat vasoclusive episodes. The time to receiving appropriate pain control for patients with
2: sickle cell disease presentations for vasoclusive
1: episodes continues to far exceed the recommended guidelines. In this observational study, patients who received intranasal fentanyl had higher rates of discharge than those who did not, and the magnitude of that difference was huge.
2: Some of us work in areas where intranasal fentanyl is already in use for other painful conditions. If you don't, this is a battle worth fighting. As I said before, I've done this myself for several years, and so I'm super excited to
1: have some data to back up my practice anyways. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And keep listening for more to come about sickle cell.
2: In the meantime, you can find us on at EMPulse podcast. If you learned something, please share this
1: episode with a colleague and spread the word. And thanks to the UC Davis Emergency Department for trying new things like in Fentanyl. And thanks to OM Productions for trying new things with us. Until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, and stay tuned.